This is the Marketing Podcast Network. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, Tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, and what fuels them to keep creating. It all starts by asking one simple question. Where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin. Well, hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm pleased to introduce you to Eric G. Wilson. Eric is the Thomas H. Prichard Professor of English at Wake Forest University, where he teaches creative writing and British romantic poetry. He is the author of Against Happiness, Everyone Loves a Good Trainwreck, and Dream Child, The Life of Charles Lamb. He joins me today to talk about his career and latest book, How to Be Weird, an Off-Kilter Guide to Living a One-of-a-Kind Life. And I can't wait to get into that a little bit more. Welcome to Uncorking the Story, Eric. Thank you, Mike. I'm so happy to be here. Eric, I'm happy to have you here. And I have to ask you the question I ask everybody as we begin these conversations, which is, where does your story as an author begin? Well, I actually have two lives as an author. Um, my first life as an author would be as, as a scholar of uh, British romantic literature, my second life would be as a creative writer. And, and both of those lives have interesting origins. So I, I'll briefly touch on, on each. Um, so I, I grew up in a small town in North Carolina uh, where my dad was head football coach at the local high school. So basically I was groomed to be an athlete. I was a quarterback, played for my dad for three years. We had some good teams. Um, and I was recruited to play football at the United States Military Academy. And so I thought, wow, I'll go to West Point. Um, first person ever in the history of my town to go to West Point. Huge honor. So I show up at West Point. Um, but the day before I left um, to go up to um, West Point, my mom was buying some toiletries for me and whatnot. And she saw this paperback book, like right at the checkout. This is back in the days when you could buy paperbacks at the checkout. And Bill Murray was on the cover. And she knew that I love Bill Murray. Um, so she got, well, I'll get this book for Eric and I'll he throw it in his bag. And when he gets lonely or tired or whatever, he can read the book about Bill Murray. Well, so I get to West Point. I'm there for like two, three days. And I'm thinking, I got to get the hell out of here immediately if I can. Um, because the military just isn't for me. I like football. I don't like being a soldier. But you have to stay for 30 days. So um, I had to get through this 27-day period. And I remember lying in my bunk at night unable to sleep, feeling anxious, anxious because I was leaving, feeling like I was disappointing my dad because I was leaving. So I thought, well, okay, I'll read this book about Bill Murray to go to sleep. Well, I was able to get just enough light for my, my Casio running watch to read it. And it wasn't about Bill Murray at all. It was about um, this film that he was playing in in 1984 called The Razor's Edge, which is a novel by Somerset Maugham, which is about a young man who's traumatized in World War One, comes home, has money waiting for him, a beautiful socialite um, fiance waiting for him, throws all that away. 
and goes on this quest to find himself and you know, ends up in India studying the Upanishads. So I'm reading this at 18 going, whoa, this is amazing. Um, I kind of want to do this. Um, so it's, it kind of set out this curiosity toward philosophy and poetry for me that I really held to and ended up going to school and studying philosophy and poetry and getting a PhD in English and all that stuff. And I'd say until about 2006, um, I wrote what we would call academic books, literary critical studies of people like William Blake or Ralph Waldo Emerson, folks like that. But I had a, a conversion moment in about 2006 where I moved away from academic writing to more creative writing. And this is the second sort of origin story of, of my life as a writer, and I'll touch on it briefly too. Um, so I'm on record as suffering from bipolar disorder, so I'm not giving a big confession here. And my daughter was about four years old in 2006, and I was really suffering depression in a serious way. I felt like I was failing her as a father, failing her in so many ways. And I was in therapy at the time. And he said, look, Eric, don't try to be a good dad. You're not that kind. Don't try to be um, respectful. Don't try to be authoritative. Don't try to teach her good versus bad. You're really funny <laughs> and, and interesting and weird. Do whatever you can to make her laugh. So my daughter and I started playing these games like Weird Zoo or like Weird Classroom, where we would just kind of create these weird experiences that, that would take us all kinds of places. And we connected over that. So I would say my beginning as a kind of writer of creative writing grew out of this interest in weirdness, strangeness, the outray. Um, so those those are my two um, origin stories. I can't let the Bill Murray stuff go um, because he's one of my favorites as well. And the other night I'd never seen, I can't believe I never saw this movie, but I'd never seen it. So I watched it the other night, uh, Scrooged with uh, with Bill yeah. Murray and David Johansson, you know, otherwise known as Buster Poindexter, uh, yeah. Bobcat Goldthwait. I mean, it was such a great little walk down memory aisle for me. But do, do you have a favorite Bill Murray movie? Well, um, I, I I love I love two Bill Murray movies. Um, my first favorite is Meatballs, which was his first movie coming straight out of Saturday Night Live. It's not a great movie now, but when I was a kid and I saw it, it was kind of kind of mind blowing. Um, and then my second favorite would be the Jim Jarmusch film Broken Flowers, uh, where he sort of he he understands that he has he has a son somewhere, but he doesn't know who the mother is. So he goes on this quest to find the mother of his son. Like Tilda Swinton's in it, Jessica Lange is in it. It's really a fantastic movie. Yeah, look at that. Um, so West Point, so you, you waited 30 days and then you left. How did, how did, uh, were there any repercussions from that? Well, my, my, I have to say, I mean, my dad coached for 40 years. The stadium is named after him. So football was his life. And, um, but I have to give him credit. He, he, he said, look, son, if this is going to make you happy, you pursue your poetry and I'll, I'll support you. Same with my brother, by the way, four years younger, he was also slated to play college football and he chose acting instead. So my, I think my dad was doubly disappointed. <laughs> Two potential football players go to the arts pretty hard. Right. Yeah. Um, so making that pivot from academic writing to creative writing, um, what, what sort of challenges did you face when you were, when you were kind of in, in making that pivot? So the main thing would, would be, um, voice. As, as you probably can guess, most academic writing aspires to be non-individual, aspires to be objective. You try to keep the personal out of it, uh, which can make for clear writing, but not, in, I would say, necessarily interesting writing. So in making the move from the academic voice to a more personal voice was extremely difficult because I've been writing academically for so long and I've, I've, I was pretty decent at it. 
so just to move, I'd say, from the general to the particular, from the public to the personal, and ultimately from the predictable to the strange uh, were, were, were the biggest challenges. And so I think my first book of creative writing, published book, Against Happiness in Praise of Melancholy, which came out in 2008, I have to be honest, I think it's kind of a mixed book. I think there's some decent writing in there, but also I think there's some academic jargon in there, which I would, would cringe at at this point. Um, I feel like I really kind of made that transition. I wrote a memoir in 2010 called The Mercy of Eternity, a memoir of depression and grace, which talks about this struggle with bipolar and my relationship to my daughter. I feel like that book kind of moved me more toward a personal voice because I said, look, I'm just going to say what I think. I'm going to try to capture the movement of my mind. I'm not going to try to be lyrical. I'm not going to try to be intelligent. I'm going to try to move with the rhythm of my mind. So the first half was terrible, um, but it but it gave me a kind of raw material that was highly idiosyncratic that I could work with to get that more personal voice. Yeah. Well, what can you share uh, with us, with me, and then, of course, the listeners with um, about how to be weird and off-kilter guide to living a one-of-a-kind life? Because that, that title, I mean, it certainly grabbed me when I read it for the first time. So in, in the book, um, I define weirdness as, I guess I could say, one, one of two movements. On the one hand, weirdness happens when the familiar feels unfamiliar. Um, and on the other hand, weirdness happens when the unfamiliar suddenly feels familiar. And I feel like that in, in those moments, and I give lots of examples throughout the book, our, 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 our sense of identity is, is challenged. Um, we're thrown into a kind of feeling of disorientation. Um, and a lot of times we recoil from that, like, whoa, that's weird. Let me go back to the normal because the normal feels good. But if we can kind of stick with the strangeness and the weirdness, oftentimes we question the status quo and something in us opens up we hadn't seen before. And what I think in the book is that our inner weird is our own most self. When, when you're feeling really weird, that's really you. <laughs> um, I mean, that's the you that's not anyone else. Uh, th that, that is unrepeatable, unprecedented, original. And so weirdness, if we sit with it, if we feel comfortable with it, with, if we cultivate it, can make us aware of what makes us us and no one else. And that can lead to, I think, the kind of joy of feeling unique, but also it can inspire creativity because you realize that to be creative, you need to express that that inner weirdness. So that's that's the basic thesis of the book. And in 99 very brief exercises, I, I suggest various ways that, that we can cultivate our inner weirdness and hopefully feel more original and more creative. Can, can you give me an example of like what one of those exercises might be? Absolutely. So um, one of them is just very simple. There's this um, concept in Zen Buddhism known as Yugen, um, Y-U-G-E-N. And it's the experience of, of wandering out into the world as if you will never return again and have no place to go. <laughs> and, 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 and the idea is that you, you suddenly you you start looking around the world and you look at the horizon like what's beyond the horizon or you see a, a fence like what's beyond that fence or you see a grate in the in the in, in on the street like what's in that grate so one exercise is cultivate this feeling of yugen go out and wonder for five minutes or ten minutes once a week um not going anywhere but simply imagining what's beyond the horizons you see um, and that can expand our sense of the world and make us feel more connected to the world. That's one very basic example, but there are a lot of other ones. For, for instance, 
Um, I have one called Turn This Book Into a Shovel, where <laughs> the idea is that, okay, you have a paperclip in your hand. It's a paperclip, but you can turn it into a C or an E or, or a toothpick. All these things you can turn a paperclip into because it's sick of being a paperclip. And just like we're kind of sick of, of being ourselves. So there's this other kind of Zen proverb that, that talks about a Zen master handing a fan to one of his students. And he opens the fan, fans himself. And then the master says, no, 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 no. And hands the fan to another student. He closes it, scratches himself with it. Oh, now you can use it as a scratcher. Another student opens it up and it becomes a plate and he serves cake on the plate. So I ask my readers, just take my book in your hand right now. What different things can you make it into? A mortar board, um, a little triangular house, so on and so forth. So in both those cases, you can um, turn this book into a shovel. Something very familiar is seen in a fresh light. And hopefully it gives us just this little kind of jolt of, of newness and strangeness um, that ultimately makes life more interesting. I ask people, why don't you learn make your own ink? Um, that can be fun. Um, I say, why don't you come with a, an alternative identity? Um, and when you're really feeling bored with yourself, imagine what your alter ego is doing. Um, I say, learn to write with your opposite hand, just your name, just anything that, that just kind of tilts tilts the world just a tiny bit because i really feel like as we age one big problem of life is boredom um stasis feeling like everything's the same damn thing all the time so these are little tiny kind of gentle clever i hope nudges um in, into something elseness you can come back to who you are but you come back a little differently i hope yeah. I mean, they're, they're great creativity exercises overall. Like let's say you wanted to, you're running into a brainstorming session or, you know, just even sitting down to do a little creative writing, kind of going through a, a few of these exercises might just get, get that part of your brain that that's a little bit more creative thinking and stimulated. And, and then you can better, you know, sort of turn to a, a creative task at hand. Well, uh, a lot of these exercises grew out of my experience teaching creative writing. Um, some of them have to do with language, like create your own curse word um, or, or create your own um, onomatopoeia uh, or in, in some cases um, come up with an image at any given time that expresses your mood. So, so that's there. Um, but also I have, um, well, I guess more whimsical exercises like learn a magic trick, learn a coin trick or, or learn a, car, a card trick. It turns out that there's a whole school of um, psychotherapy devoted to magic tricks. I didn't know that. Um, the idea is if, if, if you're not feeling so great, if you learn a magic trick, it's it's good for you. Um, I have other exercises that are sort of more serious, where you go back and visit a place where something really weird happened when you were younger and just kind of be there and, and, and stand there with that. So, so I like to think it runs kind of the, the gamut from something you might do as an eighth grader um, to something you might do as an adult in a, like a midlife crisis. Um, yeah. yeah, Vernie, how much of, of, of this you're thinking um, can, can you look at a link back to that, that interaction you had with, you know, a therapist back in, what did you say? It was 2006. Yeah, 2006 thereabouts. Yeah. yeah. Who said, hey, be funny. And then you, you started to play really funny and weird kind of, you know, games with your daughter. I mean, does this kind of link back to that? Or Absolutely. And so my daughter and I would play. We still play these games. She's 20 now. And, you know, we'll, we'll, there will have this these moments where we might see something on TV. We love we love Wes Anderson films, for instance, and or, or, or just anything. And, and she'll say, Dad, do you feel weird? 
I'm like, yeah, I feel a little weird. Do you feel weird? So it's kind of a little game we play. It's, it's inconsequential. But I did learn through this kind of psychotherapeutic move of cultivating weirdness that the way I could connect best with my daughter was not by trying to be something society wanted me to be, but by just going with my own messiness in a way mm-hmm. and expressing that with a kind of joy. And again, my feeling is whenever we express something deep inside of us, it's always going to be kind of weird just be- because we haven't quite digested it or, or other people may not expect it. So I, I developed kind of an aesthetics of the weird. Um, I tell my students and the queen of the aesthetics of weird would be um, Emily Dickinson. I, I believe um, I had this moment in high school when I was sitting in class, English class, bored out of my head. And all of a sudden, the teacher started reading this poem. Um, There's a certain slant of light, winter afternoons, that oppresses like the heft of cathedral tunes. And it goes on. It's like, what? A certain slant of light, winter afternoons. And and I just started thinking about this beam of light coming through a window in February with this kind of white sky in the distance and not knowing what the hell it meant. And and that's what's kind of the point of it. Emily Dickinson said, you know, you read a good poem, you feel like the top of your head's been blown off. So that was just a moment where the poem didn't mean anything. It just felt really unsettling. So I I try to cultivate those moments in class to get the students not to try to make the poems mean anything with like a a big M, but to try to just get the feel of kind of the texture of that poem and how it speaks to what is most personal about them. They can write the essay later, um, but poetry hits us deepest, I think, in those places in our psyche or in our interiority that aren't mapped very well yet. Yeah, no, no kidding. Um, but, you know, I just wanted to share, uh, you've got a 20 year old, um, I've got three 20 year olds at home. So we have, um, oh, <laughs> uh, but I think it's really cool. And I, I don't know how you feel about this. Maybe you tell me, but um, being now able to interact with your kids as adults, you know, versus, you know, their role as, as children. Have you, have you noticed it like a difference in the way you, you interact with your daughter now that she's 20? Absolutely. And I love it. Um, I have to say, so uh, I went through a divorce in 2017 and my daughter and I became, she was 16 when that happened. And she and I became extremely close at that point. Really not as so much a father and a daughter, but it's kind of like buddies in, in a way. And I feel like that's what we are now. We're just like really great buddies. Um, she's kind of my, my best friend and we are natured very similarly. Again, we have a sense of the absurd. Um, I think of this great line in another great Bill Murray movie by the way lost in translation where he's lying on the bed with the scarlett johansson character and she goes you know what's it like to have children he said well you know you have them you don't really know what's going on then one day you wake up and you think these are some of the finest people that i know and and i kind of look at my daughter and feel that way it's like wow this person is is related to me and um i had an impact on her life in some way um so to answer your question i think it's fantastic when she's 20 i mean i can i can be more profane with her for instance um i I can drink more heavily (laughs) around her without worrying about repercussions for instance um so i i I got a sense you feel the same way your children are older and you you connect with them a little more yeah you know they're they're in college um you know two two of them go to the same school one goes to another one and like when, when we're all together and we talk and you know they start opening up about things that you know, sometimes things that I don't want to know about, um, but, you know, they feel comfortable doing so. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, you know, interestingly, because they meet all sorts of they were in a very like closed environment, like growing up through high school, uh, kind of small, smaller schools. And now two of them are at a big state university. They're meeting people from all different walks of life. 
And, you know, they, they will tell me like stories about the weirdos they see. Yeah. Yeah. And I always try and tell them, I'm like, hey, look, don't, you know, they might be different than you, but don't, don't, you know, consider them weirdos or use the term weirdo like it's a bad thing. Because mm-hmm. those are some of the most interesting people, you know, that you'll ever meet and you'll ever interact with, you know, and, and try not to judge people for, you know, those, those differences that are kind of outside of the, the, the normal curve of distribution, so to speak. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I, I've told my daughter the same thing and she, she goes to school where I teach actually at Wake Forest and Wake Forest is a fairly traditional school, a fairly homogenous student body. And a lot of the students are wealthier and conservative. And she goes, dad, I don't want to go there. Um, I said, you'll find your people. And she has, I mean, she, you know, she, she sort of found people who, who fit, who fit her interests. And I really think, like you say, being, being open to people who are other and who are a little challenging, who are are a little uncomfortable at first. um, That's great. If, if, if we can do that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I always like to uh, get to know my, my guests a little bit more. One way I like to do that is through pop culture. So uh, I'm curious. Uh, when you were growing up, Eric, what were some of your favorite things to watch on TV? Well, so I, I grew up in the seventies watching network television. So I was a huge fan of say Starsky and Hutch and, and, and mod squad. Those those kind of gritty um, police shows that were in syndication. So I'd come home from school and watch Gilligan's Island from three 30 to four. And then I would catch uh, either Starsky or Hutch or mod squad from four to five. And I just love, I just love those shows. So that was when I, when I was younger, um, so I, I still I still really enjoy those kind of gritty 70s films like like Serpico and Dog Day Afternoon, uh, French Connection, which is actually from the 60s. But <laughs> yeah, both of those uh, Serpico and Dog Day Afternoon with yeah. the wonderful uh, Al Pacino. Oh, yeah. The young the young kind of very sensitive, vulnerable Al Pacino. It's like he, he kind of shifted, you know, in the, in the in the 90s and became the more flamboyant over the top. That's right. Hoorah, Al Pacino. Hoorah, Charlie. Yeah, that's right. But both work, but, but, yeah. but I think. I mean, I have to mention a more whimsical. Um, I don't want to sound like too too uh, artsy. I also loved Magnum P.I. It was huge. Oh, my Keeps God. popular. I mean, I wore Hawaiian shirts to school like he did. I wore dock sides with no socks and really short shorts like he did. I, I loved Magnum P.I. Nice big hairy chest and a Ferrari like he had or no? No doubt. Yeah. Swimming <laughs> in the ocean. It's fantastic. <laughs> did you did you catch um the reboot of Magnum PI from a few years ago? I didn't. How how's it hold up? It's actually really good. They did something very interesting with the Higgins character. Okay. Uh, right. uh, they they made her they made her a woman. Oh, cool. Uh, and she's like former like MI6 or something. Um nice. It nice. Really, but it really, really well done show. They kept to the the spirit of the show. Um, which I'll is, give it a look. But yeah, it's pretty good. The uh, Thomas Hernandez, I think, plays Magnum. Okay. Um. Yeah, and Starsky and Hutch, man, that car, like, it's all about the car, right? Oh, dude, that 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 red car with that white kind of Nike stripe. Nike swoop right? on. <laughs> you know. Oh man, and David Soul and Paul Michael Glazier. I mean, those guys. I don't know. I thought they were great. I mean, the 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 film version of of the film is you know a comedy with Ben Stiller and Owen yeah. Wilson. It's good for what it wants to do. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I thought it was okay. You know, it was also it chips was one of my big shows growing up, oh, right? Yeah, so yeah. that was one of my, my my I have a twin brother. He and I would would watch chips if uh, if we were good in church, we could watch chips. That was the deal. Like my parents yeah. knew how to, to to really bargain with us. And um, I watched the remake. They did a movie. Uh, who was it? Um, 
oh god, the guy I, I'm gonna forget. Dak Shepard. Dak Shepard wrote and directed um, a, a film version of Chips, and it was good, but it didn't stick with the spirit, the campiness yeah. of the original show. That like, they made it really dark and gritty. Well, that's so cool about the yeah the the early the early Chips with Eric Estrada. It is campy and and knows knows it's campy. Oh yeah, it, but yet it, also not. It's just cool with the motorcycles and just like the heavy baseline music in the background. It's like almost like got seventies disco beats going on back there. Absolutely love it. Love that show. Sounds like we're in the same age age range. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And we, and we both have twenty year olds, so yes, um, yes. that that brings us into a special club. Yeah. Um, what about music when you were growing up? What'd you like to listen to? Bruce Springsteen was the man um, beginning to end. I was a gigantic Bruce fan, remain a Bruce fan. I saw him in um, Charlotte Coliseum uh, in the Born in the USA tour, 1985. I'll never forget it. Um, I'd camped out for tickets with some friends, went to the show, had a big physics exam the next day. I was a good student, but I didn't care. I I would have fell out of high school to go to that. And he did the classic four-hour show. And it it was the very end. He sat and played Born to Run. Like, when's he going to play Born to Run? And finally, people just started kind of leaving, thinking it's over. And all the lights in the house came on. Yeah. He started playing it. I'd never seen that before. I'm getting chills just telling you about it. Um, so, yeah, the, bo- the boss was my guy um, almost exclusively. Um, what about you? Who, who was? Uh, I mean, I, I love Springsteen uh, myself, yeah. but I went through like different phases. Like when yeah. I was really young, I was into like... Um, like New York rap music, like when that was becoming popular, like the original hip hop, like Wu Tang Clan, and oh, um, and before then, Houdini. Oh, um, okay, Houdini, yeah. Run DMC. Uh, oh, yeah, and yeah. then like these bands, like like Anthrax, came out and 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 did something with Public Enemy, and I'm like, it was like a an entirely new sound of like thrash metal and and hip hop. Um, so then I got into like a lot of like heavy metal, Iron Maiden. Yeah, um, and that today it's like it, you if you looked in my my phone like you two would be like the number one artist kind of coming up. <laughs> um, I don't know. And now and then I now I listen to like, you know, if it's not you two, it's like yacht rock. And and my my younger self, my inner teen is is arguing with my adult self. Like, you know, we used to rock out, man. Now you're listening to like Hall and Oates. Yeah, yeah. Or like, uh, who's the guy that did the theme from Arthur? I- <laughs> um. Oh, uh, Christopher Cross. Christopher Cross. They're like, you're like, <laughs> yeah. They're like yeah. you used to be cool, man. But I love it. Well, I mean, I've gone through that phase, but I have to admit, I have to say for the last two months, I've listened almost to nothing but East Coast hip hop. I mean, I mean, Wu-Tang Clan, uh, 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 Biggie Smalls. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oz, Lil' Kim. And they're just like, I was like, whoa, I'm, I missed this entirely. Um, and then I'm just kind of listening to like new, new age stuff, like, like Interpol um and the strokes mm-hmm. um and so I, I guess i had a lot of huge gaps in right. my music so i'm trying to go back and fill those yeah there's a great documentary on um it's called the dark side of the 90s i think it was done by cnn and they devote one entire episode to uh east coast west coast hip-hop um oh. fighting uh so which is really good um but little kim yeah you mentioned her it's like Ooh. you listen to her and it's like i didn't know that um you know, music can have an X rating, but uh, you know, it it clearly um, she's got some tricks. Who knew, right? I mean, oh, I know, it's it's it still feels really edgy um, to yeah. me anyway. <laughs> and yeah, and, and and yeah, sexy and amazing and yeah, yeah, dangerous, uh, very dangerous. Yeah. Uh, we almost shouldn't be talking about it. I know. Uh, stop, stop now before we say something. Yeah. Tipper Gore is going to come after us. Oh uh, yeah. 
Yeah, Frank Zappa, our our savior for First Amendment, um, has gone away. Him and Dee Snyder. Dee Snyder, right? Fighting against um, Tipper Gore back in the day. <laughs> so I interviewed uh, the um, um, uh, oh god, JJ, um, JJ, JJ. He was the the lead guitarist and manager of Twisted Sister. I interviewed him last year. Cool. Um, and you know, we 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 did talk about that. It, it was the single greatest thing that that happened for music was the parental advisory sticker that went on uh, albums and tapes and CDs because sales just skyrocketed because kids were like, I, I need, this is dangerous. I want to listen to it. Yeah. But uh, how about um, things you learned about yourself um, kind of uh, as, um, as a writer uh, and kind of pivoting towards more creative writing um, from academic, what did you learn about yourself? What big insights did, did you uncover about yourself uh, while you're writing? I, I think the main one is that for most of my life, I developed, I became articulate, um, even eloquent as a way to kind of defend myself against other people. I kind of hid behind a, a, a shield of language. And a lot of professors do this. They can talk about anything and they can talk about it fairly well and clearly, but they're constantly deflecting from talking about their own opinions. Or, or, or their own doubts or their own right. insecurities. So I, I feel like for, for me to, when I finally feel like I became a better creative writer, I had to be more vulnerable and, and express my insecurities more and ultimately be willing to fail. I tell my students that to write well, you have to fail. If, if you feel like you're in the, in the zone or in the groove and the language is coming to you easily, you're probably not writing that well. I feel like we're writing at our best when like the next word we feel like we're, we're like we've lost our ability to speak um, because we hit all these barriers and then that word comes in that word comes. So I think this being more comfortable with failure, insecurity, vulnerability have been the biggest things for me um, as a writer, but also just knowing my bad habits. I, is I can tell when I'm BSing, you know, when I start using the big words, uh, when I start using too many adverbs and like, oh, come on, Eric, you know, you're trying to you're trying to run away from the truth. Uh, get right. back in there. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I think that vulnerability and fear of failure are, are two um, themes that I like to explore often with with my guests because um, as writers, if you're if you're not being vulnerable, like because just the act of writing and publishing requires a tremendous amount of vulnerability because you're putting whether you're writing fiction or nonfiction, you're putting yourself and your characters on the page, and then of course your 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 work is going to be judged by somebody, whether it's a critic or whether it's by a reader. You know, you're going to get reviews. Um, Shit, agents too, right? I mean, they're gonna they're gonna have a point of view. Editors are gonna have a point of view. Um, so it does. If you're not open to vulnerability, if you're not being vulnerable, um, and even open to a little bit of failure, uh, you know, you're not, you know, you're you're kind of limiting yourself. I would I would think. Well, you're. I tell my students, I said, look, if you want to start publishing your work, you should aspire to fifty rejection letters a year, because if you get fifty, that means you've sent out to like. 60 yeah. um and and maybe one takes you um or because i tell him i mean i published a lot of stuff but still i get rejected like most of the time and and you're right even when i mean i, I published a biography of uh, charles lamb recently 19th century british essays it took me like six years to do um and then my very first review was a negative review and I don't care. Some writers say, well, I don't look at reviews. I don't care about reviews. I don't think that's true. You know, you can't, it's like, I can't look. Oh, I'm going to look like, oh my God, I can't believe he said that. And 
right. so that that is a roller coaster. I mean, it hurts. It still hurts every time when someone says that is not good enough. No, I, but you I, have I, to write knowing that might happen or yeah. will happen. Yeah, it's, it's definitely going to happen, right? Yeah. It's yeah. going to happen. Um, I had other good reviews, by the way. I just want to go on record. Yeah. <laughs> sure, you did. I had other really good reviews. Yeah. Um, and then you know if if you could uh you know get into a DeLorean, hit 88 miles an hour, go back in time. What what are some words of advice you might give to your younger self? Hmm. Besides don't go to West Point. Don't go to West Point. Um, no, I probably would say stay at West Point. No. Um, I, 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 I grew up being very aware and probably this is true of most of us, just being very aware of, well, let me back up. I was very success oriented um, as an athlete and as a student. And I've remained that way. Most, most, most of us probably have to the point where I was so afraid of failure that if I like had a bad class, I would be neurotic about it for like 24 hours. Or if I had an interchange with a colleague and I thought I said something stupid, I'd be neurotic about it. In other words, this, this sense that like people are watching me, people are aware of me, people are judging me. But by now I realize most people don't give a damn about me. I mean, most people are like totally indifferent to me. The people I thought were judging me negatively probably weren't thinking about me at all. Mm -hmm. So I would say to my 13 year old self, like the people you think are talking about you behind your back, aren't talking about you at all, probably. <laughs> and that, that, and that's, that's pretty liberating if you can really get that. And to, if there is such a thing as the wisdom of older age, it's just caring less about what people say about you and think about you. That's really liberating. But part of it just comes from being tired because it takes a lot of energy to care too much about what people say and think about you. Yeah. I mean, if, if that's, if this is any indication, my father's 90 um, and he's entered into that. I don't give a fuck phase of life right now. Um, he just doesn't care. doesn't care. He will express his opinions. He walks around naked. Like, <laughs> I'm like, dad, I, I don't know. We, we can put on some pants. Can we put on some pants? He was sitting there in his chair reading the New York Post. And um, I was in his apartment. He stands up to like go to the kitchen. And I'm like, you don't have any pants on. <laughs> like, what, what's happening? Uh, You're like, why? Why do we need to see this? But well, from what from, from watching my parents age, aging seems pretty awful. So if you can gain a little bit of pleasure by walking around naked, we should just say, okay, just, just do it. I know it's awful, but it beats the alternative, right? I mean, true indeed. True enough. Yeah. Well, Eric, do you have any uh, a website or social media that you want to share with uh, the listeners? I'll, I'll be sure to put them in the show notes. Sure. Um, EricGWilson.net. EricGWilson.net is my website. Um, I think you can go there and, and find, find out um, what you might want to find out about me. All right. And uh, are you active on social media, Twitter? I am. I have a Facebook page um, and I have a um, Instagram, which is Eric G. Wilson, seven, 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 Eric G. Wilson, seven, seven, seven. The uh, Facebook, I think it's just Eric G. Wilson. Um, All right. I'm yeah. not too active on those platforms, but I'll All occasionally right. drop in there. I'm sure your daughter is. Um, yeah. <laughs> and last but not least, where can people go uh, to pick up how to be weird and off kilter guide to living a one of a kind life? Well, um, I would say go to your local bookstore, and if they don't have it, they'll be happy to order it for you. Um, I would say if you want to stick stick around your house, um, any place you buy online books, um, you you can get it. It is available. There are copies, and it is great gift. I have to be honest about that. It's a great holiday gift. Uh, it's the kind of book you can put in your toilet or on your coffee table. 
people can just pick it up and just leaf through it and read exercise number 85 and get a little laugh maybe and and then go on with their lives so yeah pick pick it up and and um give it to your uh, that that friend who is either too normal um or too weird either would be a great audience there you go and uh Eric Wilson reminding us that books make great gifts for the holiday season. Yeah. Thanks, Mike. (laughs) Thank you, Eric. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.